Welcome to Wine Country Women with Michelle Mandreau, the podcast for wine fanatics who are curious not only about what goes in the bottle, but the remarkable women who make these distinctive winemaking regions so special. Each week, we introduce you to a prominent woman and take a peek into her life and, of course, her favorite wines. I'm Michelle Mandreau, and this is a special edition of our Wine Country Women podcast. We are recording live at Commonwealth Tap in Louisville, Kentucky. Since we are in bourbon country, it's only appropriate we talk about bourbon, whiskey, its popularity, and why a wine country woman from Napa Valley would decide to go into the spirit business. Joining me for this discussion is Suzanne Pfeiffer Pavitt. She's the proprietor and winemaker of Pfeiffer Pavitt Winery in Calistoga, and Peggy No Stevens, who is the world's first female master bourbon taster, the founder of Bourbon Women, and has a family rich in bourbon history. Her cousins are Fred and Booker No of Jim Bean. Let's get started. So Suzanne, as a woman who lives in the Napa Valley and makes wine, why did you decide to get into the spirits industry? Well, the short version of that story is that I really wanted to blend my southern roots and my Napa Valley lifestyle. And I really focus on making very intentional wines that are terroir and a sense of place driven. And so for me, making a high-end spirit or a bourbon whiskey could only come from this part of the world. So the opportunity presented itself and all the stars aligned and here I am in the fine state of Kentucky offering and announcing our first Pfeiffer Pavit Reserve bourbon. Okay, so you just wanted to start making a bourbon. Well, I'd always, I grew up with bourbon in my life and as an after dinner and I consider bourbon to be one of the top spirits and so in making world-class I make Napa Valley Cabernet it's world-class I make a Sancerre Stella Sauvignon Blanc it's world-class from this sense of place in Napa Valley and it's no secret people know that about my personality and and what I'm trying to do and so it kind of was a, a person talking to another person and then Bardstown Bourbon Company decided to launch this uh, distillery in Bardstown, Kentucky and one thing led to another and they wanted to show a bourbon finished in a Napa Valley Cabernet barrel and my name came up. So they came out, met with me and we started the discussion and I really fell in love with what they were doing, uh, specifically with Steve Nally, which I'm sure we'll talk more about in our time together. But uh, it was an opportunity to work with some world-class people on a product that is also world-class and to blend that with my experience on the, on the wine side. So it was just this, it was kind of a trifecta of three amazing opportunities that came together in one. So I have to ask, are there other spirits in your future? (laughs) There are no other spirits currently in my future, no. Not currently. It it was the question of the day today, being in Louisville though. Uh, But I'm I'm really excited about this, but we're gonna stay focused on the course of making Napa Valley wines and of making the bourbon product here in Kentucky. Okay, well let's taste some of it. Okay. And talk about it here. 
So the this is a nine-year George Dickel Tennessee whiskey. However, I want to clarify, it comes from Tennessee as a whiskey, but it uh, is not charcoal mellowed, which allows it to be classified as a bourbon. We brought this in to Bardstown. We finished bottling simultaneously the Pfeiffer Pavit Date Night Cabernet and had a truck standing by, 55 degree refrigerated truck, where we took the barrels, left the lees in the barrels, bunged them, wrapped them, put them on that truck, and they were driven at 55 degrees across the country and immediately filled with this product. They were then put on the top level of the rickhouse and finished for 20 months in our barrels. So they meet all of the classifications of a bourbon, 84% corn, 8% malted barley, and 8% rye aged in uh, the American oak as standard, but then finished in a Pfeiffer Pavic Cabernet barrel. So the flavor that you get and what I was really going for was first and foremost, this cashmere mouthfeel, this really soft velvety mouthfeel that presents that candied orange peel and that undercurrent of, I would classify it as Madagascar vanilla, very specific. <laughs> and then what the underpinnings or the undercurrent of the flavor is, is representative from the Cabernet. It's the mocha, a little of that chocolate mocha flavor. And then what we're known for with the terroir uh, from our fruit source for our Cabernet is the Christmas spice, kind of that cardamom, cinnamon, clove, that, that just that underpinning of flavor profile. I think you get that Christmas spice um, on the nose, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. too. Peggy, I'd be curious to get your thoughts on the um, bourbon. Well, first of all, I, I'm sorry this not, is not on television because if anybody would see the beautiful color of this whiskey, I mean, it is so decadent, actually, uh, in very sparkle bounce. Uh, so I was very impressed with the color alone. Uh, I also, at first nose for me, I really got a sense of the oak. Uh, definitely the oak uh, expressed itself and a lot of people don't realize uh, when you nose oak, sometimes you can get cherry notes. Uh, so I get some cherry chocolate uh, at first glance and first nose. I, go ahead. No, please. Oh, I was going to say, I also get some baking spices. There is no doubt there's baking spices. And believe it or not, kind of a tobacco leaf. Absolutely. Absolutely. The, the notes uh, that you're getting also coming from the French oak. So we've got both of those. We've got the American oak from the, from the basic, the beginning of the product. And then from the French oak, that underpinning, we've got the weathered leather, a little dried tobacco. So it, it's definitely got some age on it. It makes me think of my grandpa who used to dry tobacco in, in, his, in his shop. So it does have those underpinnings, and certainly for us in our Cabernet, you get that cherry approach, that ch- almost cherry cola a little bit. Absolutely. So all of that comes together, and I think really blends exquisite. I was just going to add one other tasting note that came very clear to me, and this is a very traditional for a bourbon is to get caramel notes. Uh, so this was almost like a caramel marshmallow oh, together. Uh, if I were to describe it, uh, and I think that it just is the right essence of sweetness. It wasn't overpowering, uh, but very delicate. Um, 
We have, uh, Peggy, it might be interesting for you. I'm sorry that our listeners aren't able to have smell-o-vision or, or visual, as you said. But we have brought, we've got a little glass of the cab here, too, because Peggy is outlining all of the flavor characteristics of our cab, which what we were hoping in this finish by leaving the lees in the barrel, which plenty of people are attempting a finish, it's, it's not uncommon uh, with, with the bourbon craze, but the finish is really picking up on those leaves that were there resident. It really, what do you think? Well, the wine itself, uh, it speaks for itself, uh, but I have to tell you, this explains kind of those jammy notes uh, that I was getting a little bit, almost like a marmalade uh, in the bourbon. And after tasting the wine in the pure form, uh, it absolutely has those really rich, robust jam notes. It seems like now's an appropriate time to talk about the differences of nosing a wine versus a bourbon or whiskey. Sure. Uh, well, with whiskey, unlike wine, and I don't want to steal your show on nosing, but when you nose a wine, you can stick your nose very far into the glass, really take a deep breath. Uh, whiskey is different because of the proof level. And when you do that uh, in whiskey, it would deaden your senses so you don't get all the olfactory um, essence that you should. So we like to kind of tilt the glass, uh, a whiskey glass, and just bring it casually in, just short puffs of air, pulling it in and out, just so you can really get the essence. When you're tasting a wine, my traditional, and please correct me if, if you'd like to, being a Kentucky girl, I need a wine girl to correct me, but I've always um, enjoyed tasting wine and pulling the air inside and letting it circulate uh, to get a real good mouth feel. With whiskey, however, we do something called the Kentucky Chew. Uh, we actually take a small sip, and instead of blowing any air, because that would also heighten the alcohol content in your mouth, uh, we actually chew on it a little bit. Just taking a little bit of air in, enjoying it in your mouth, getting the sense of the mouthfeel. And then if the alcohol component, like when I'm judging a competition or something, when the alcohol component is too high, you can actually blow out uh, some air and it blows out some of the alcohol. So you can really taste the tasting notes. In the tasting, for me, this all being new territory, everything accurate with applies to the wine side the one biggest thing that I had to correct was for us we always swirl our glass vehemently swirling our wine glass absolute incorrect in the bourbon tasting world all that does is present (laughs) that ether and that alcohol. alcohol so for 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 my wine fans that's the number one thing I've had to say no 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 don't swirl let the gat glass. I did not know the term Kentucky Chew, though. I'll incorporate that. Yes. If you could see. So Peggy's demonstrating for us the Kentucky right. Chew. So we don't, that it is definitely all of the, the style and the nuance to, to the adult beverage experimentation. So don't swirl on the bourbon. Do swirl and aerate and let oxygen into the Cabernet or to the, your wine. It, it aerates it and, and presents those flavor profiles. So absolutely. Which warrants a good, another good question. The differences of tasting a spirit or bourbon versus wine. Are there other differences that we should point out? 
Wow, that's I think I mean really the as far as oxygenation and letting the oxygen in is is the number one issue. Don't add, have the oxygen as you're saying you want to just shut down some of those components and let it lie whereas we want the wine tasting to be more active and more engaged. I think that's probably the biggest I think if I were to add anything, and I sure would love you to jump in when we talk about the wine, the finish. Uh, What we call the finish in in whiskey is after you've sipped, tasted, swallowed, you know, how does it leave your mouth? Is it a warm, sweet, dry finish? Uh, Is it oily? Is it hot? Uh, So the finish is very important in a whiskey because the longer you can still taste the product, the higher quality it is. Now, with wine, do you want to explain what you would expect to a finish? Well, it's, it's very similar. So we're kindred spirits in that regard. On the wine, what you want is absolute balance. You don't want it to hit your front, mid, or back palate. A perfectly balanced wine envelops your palate. So it's this nice, soft, velvety finish that lingers through. And, and you sit with it, but in a perfect world, it demands another sip. It wants you to re- readdress or revisit it. So, so you want to sit with it and have it be well-balanced in, in the palate, for sure. Want more on today's interview? Purchase Wine Country Women of Napa Valley. It's available on our website at winecountrywomen.com. So I have to ask, I think the answer is yes, but are women better tasters? <laughs> Sitting in front of women well, and being a woman myself. <laughs> I have to tell you, it's biological uh, that women have better olfactory senses. Uh, that's why we're mothers. That's why we protect our young, you know, et cetera. It's instinct. And uh, so the olfactory senses I have noticed, and of course, because of bourbon women, you know, giving tastings to literally thousands of women across the U.S., uh, they pick up nuances to the nth degree, uh, more so, and can describe it a little bit better, I think. Um, So we definitely have a a very sensitive olfactory system. I I would add to that the, the, the counterpoint to it is that we can detect any and all flaws. And I think in making any consumable product where you can identify those flaws or any inconsistencies, just ensure a high quality product can be developed. I have teenage sons and um, they probably, it's the bane of their existence that my olfactory senses are at an all time high. I can, I can smell just about anything. So. Uh, from the wine side of things, that also helps because when we're tasting through the barrels, it's not just the taste, especially when it's in a youthful state of its maturation. When you're not finished with fermentation, the smell is really what's going to send you down that path. And you had added, you know, when you when you smell, you get this, you know, a cherry flavor. Well, you're not tasting cherries typically, you, but the smell is with it. And then the other part of that I would add is that I've, I've had the privilege to go through sensorial educations and your sense of smell associates with memories. 
And so when you taste something that has a really great memory to it, you immediately like it more. And whenever I think of this dried tobacco, I think of my granddaddy. And it's this beautiful memory that just immediately kind of envelops me. And it's a warm, warm and welcoming feeling. You know, I love that you brought up the word memory because when I'm teaching a food pairing class with whiskey and people say, oh gosh, I'm afraid I can't describe it correctly. I don't know what I say, go to your kitchen mentally and it's all food memory. All of our descriptor words, as you notice, are usually food memory. And so if you think of your spice rack, you know, think of cinnamon, cardamom, nutmeg, allspice, go to your fruit, you know, is it banana, cherry, etc. So I love that you said that because it is all about a memory. Peggy, I'd like for you to tell us the significant difference between bourbon and whiskey. Well, I'm asked that question. Oh, yes, please. Because Suzanne has this product that's called a Tennessee bourbon whiskey. (laughs) Well, it's interesting because I'm asked that question quite often. Bourbon is a whiskey. It's in the category of whiskeys, but not all whiskey is bourbon. Because by government definition, in an act of Congress, actually, in 1964, legislation was passed to literally give, uh, it was an act of Congress, to give bourbon its unique profile. Uh, So it's just some of the components of it. Uh, It has to be at least 51% corn as the predominant grain. It has to be aged in new charred white oak barrels. It has to be put in the barrel, you know, at a certain proof. It has to be... Uh, distilled no higher than a certain proof so aged accordingly the right descriptions on the label so what we feel is such a quality piece of our bourbon history uh, in Kentucky and the US is that we have to distinctly follow those definitions or it cannot be called a bourbon now you can make a bourbon anywhere in the US but you cannot make it outside of the US I thought there had to be some sort of storage, like you could make a bourbon somewhere else, but as long as it's stored in Kentucky. Well, it's interesting. The laws are changing every year because more and more craft distilleries uh, have come on, and it used to be that it had to be aged at least a year in Kentucky. Everything is evolving because of the craft distilleries, so just stay tuned, and I'm sure there'll be more changes (laughs) coming down the pike. But one thing that'll never change is the core definition. Uh, because that's what's so important to our distillers is to respect that. And as I understand, Steve Nally was uh, particularly uh, involved in this product. And I'm a huge Steve Nally fan. He's had a lifetime of experience. So I, I was just curious, if you don't mind me asking her a no, question please. about this. Uh, did Steve select the whiskey prior to contacting you? Or were they trying to find a wine and then pair it to the whiskey eventually. So was it the chicken or egg that came first? Really great question. So when I came back and we decided to do this product product together, first of all, as you said, Steve Nally, Hall of Fame, Master Distiller, just a huge honor for me to have the privilege to work with him. An amazing human, amazing person, and incredibly talented. We tasted through probably a 100 mash bills from all over from Kentucky, from Tennessee, from Indiana. And uh, we, when we were tasting through the products, the first uh, request on their behalf was for it to meet my flavor profile, what I wanted. Because 
they're not from the wine side. They, they haven't been as intimately involved with my wine or know it. So we eliminated, we probably got it down to about 10 different mash bills that we really liked. For me, I was absolutely supportive and, and, and required that we meet the requirements of a bourbon whiskey. And, and out of respect, because I, again, as we started this discussion, I wanted to make world-class, best-of-class. And so we, we needed it to meet that, but there were some profiles that were a little too hot and not the right flavor profile that I didn't think would pick up the essence of our Cabernet uh, and aging it in the, in the French oak barrels with the Cabernet. So Steve and I uh, started this, and John Hargrove actually joined in the process uh, as well. And the three of us went through, we settled on this nine-year Tennessee whiskey. And this has been such an amazing learning curve for me because uh, it's a Tennessee whiskey. However, it's not charcoal mellowed. Had it been charcoal mellowed, we could not have called it a bourbon. So there are all these amazing nuances that have been present with the history of bourbon. And I, as you said, just such respect for that. So... We met all of those requirements, first of all, uh, with the base product. I wanted an aged product. I didn't want to wait for 10 years. So uh, it was good that we could, we could find something that worked and then match those flavors. So once we did that, then I actually sent the wine and we did numerous wine tastings with Steve and the team. And then it co- truly collaborated together on the flavor profile. So as you said, the fact that it's not charcoal mellowed, one, uh, the base is a Tennessee whiskey, but just like you don't call um, a bourbon that su- right. Oh, well, champagne is a perfect example. A sparkling wine or champagne. Uh, we it's 84% corn, 8% rye, 8% malted barley, aged in American oak as it should be, white American oak. Uh, nine years on it before we even started, and then only then is it finished in the Pfeiffer Pavitt Cabernet Barrel for almost 20 months. So uh, the idea was for it to be a classic bourbon whiskey. Not a Tennessee whiskey, not a Tennessee bourbon whiskey, but a bourbon uh, according to the laws and the guidelines and the history, a rich history of bourbon. So it's been a huge learning curve for me, just being respectful of that. But as you said, absolutely analogous to Champagne from the region, from the brand, from the style. But I think it's a really great question uh, that a lot of people are learning about and interested in. Peggy, you are from a bourbon family rich in Kentucky history. Can you tell us the importance of bourbon in Kentucky? Well, bourbon's everything uh, to (laughs) Kentucky, Uh, short and sweet, right? It's the universal welcome that we give around the world. It's a global product. It's a Native American spirit that we're proud of. Uh, it's a natural product. There are no caramels or additives, preservatives added to bourbon. So we're incredibly proud. It's one of our top exports uh, to the state. And anybody who follows bourbon whatsoever has heard of the Kentucky Bourbon Trail, which literally millions of people come from around the world to come and visit Kentucky and see Uh, all of the distilleries, uh, some of the great names in the industry. Uh, No one has our infrastructure uh, that we have created. Okay. So we're very proud of that. Bourbon is big business. I think this is a good discussion that illustrates that. Um, 
and has become the spirit of choice worldwide. What do you think has contributed to this? I think several things, actually. Um, number one, uh, to know that in the bourbon industry in the 80s, we actually experienced a decline uh, in spirits. Scotch was on the rise because scotch was seen as a more premium product, a more premium whiskey. Again, scotch is a whiskey. Uh, so we really needed to expand and premiumize our product, and that's exactly what the industry took the reins on, was to premiumize, whether it be through packaging, their place, their grain bills, anything and everything. Uh, and I think what happened simultaneously is the cocktail retro culture came back in action. So old fashions, Manhattans, you saw bartenders all of a sudden become mixologists. Mad Men did Mad it. Men was <laughs> huge. Honestly, it really right. was. It was it was how um, sex in the city affected the cosmopolitan. Right. And so all of these things were the perfect storm for us. And as people were starting to enjoy bourbon and looking at bourbon and our expressions differently, and our master distillers became rock stars uh, around the, the world, technically, people started to follow it and became engaged with it. And so there has never been, we call it the golden age right now in, in bourbon, because it's never been uh, more successful than it is today. And we, we still see that trajectory heading many years down the road. Well, that was going to be my next question. Will it continue? We are counting on it, actually. <laughs> and I work with a lot of craft distilleries uh, around the U.S., frankly, uh, all different types of products. But we see a long-term trajectory. Uh, we think that things that are creative and innovative, just like you've done here uh, with your beautiful product, we're going to see more expressions, more innovation, more finishes. Uh, we're going to see differences in aging. Uh, how people are aging products, barrel sizes. It's going to be very unique. So innovation to me is leading the charge right now. Let's go back to Suzanne for one second. Um, tell us more about the Pfeiffer Pavit Reserve. How, how much product did you make? Where can people get it? So we started with 15 barrels. Um, as I had said earlier, you know, shipped it across the country, but uh, over the two years almost that we were collaborating on this, there was a lot of sampling going on. <laughs> so, and I've learned a new term as well. When we have evaporation in the wine world, it's the angel, uh, the angel share. Mm -hmm. And in the bourbon world, it's the devil's cut appropriately. So my newest addition to my, my education and repertoire is uh, depending on the devil's cut, from the aging and of course being on the top level of the rickhouse a higher level of evaporation in the barrel we probably made about 12 give or take 12 barrels finished the product uh, will have to hold us for two full years until the next batch is available uh, which we are moving forward on my role here this week was to visit the fine state of, of Kentucky and assess the interest. And the interest has been uh, really great, which I'm delighted with. There's a lot of Steve Nally followers, so they were interested. And, and likewise, the product turned out beautifully in this collaborative effort. So Westport Whiskey and Wine has it. Uh, we're here at Commonwealth Tap. They also have it. And it'll be stay tuned for who else will have it. Is it only available in Kentucky? Only available in Kentucky is uh, the answer. 
it is available on premise and in a handful of locations but this is the only place you can get the Pfeiffer Pivot Reserve bourbon currently is in the fine state of Kentucky okay no. so you can't even get it at your winery I have Michelle admittedly bottle number one signed uh. <laughs> by myself and Steve and currently that is what I have available even okay. to me so um, that uh, that is one of the other sticklers about the state of Kentucky. They like the world class bourbon, but it stays in Kentucky. So, so uh, do you think the bourbon supply that you have right now will last your two years, or do you anticipate it will sell out? Before I do your not next believe it will last even close to two years. Uh, based on our preview, we sold we sold out of the first bottling the night we released it on February eighth. And uh, sometimes that can be a novelty. Sometimes people buy just because they're intrigued. But I think to add on to what Peggy said, we're, we, we've caught this wave of resurgence of, of interest in bourbon and specifically the artisanal finishes. And one of the things that distinguishes the Pfeiffer Private Reserve Bourbon Project is we're finished for 20 months. And that's a long finish, even for some of your older schools, as far as changing the finish and having that oak profile. So it's a patience project, not dissimilar to winemaking, but we're, uh, we are going to continue this. Really excited to continue the collaboration, and we hope to be communicating where you can enjoy it here in Louisville and throughout Kentucky soon. So the product that you have out now, will it be the same product in two years and going forward, or will you be tweaking it along the way? The plan right now is consistency of quality, and that's been the moniker for me in our winemaking, is to establish what you expect with a Pfeiffer Pavit date night Cabernet year over year. I mean, we're in the farming business. I want to put that classification Mother Nature influences the fruit slightly differently, but we are going to continue forward with the nine-year George Dickel product. We are going to continue forward with the 19 to 20-month finish in the same Cabernet barrels. So the short answer, or the long answer, I guess I should say, is that uh, the plan is to be consistent with what we've created. Okay. Peggy, did you have something to add? Actually, you know, our Southern hospitality here, I uh, wanted to just say, since you're keeping it in Kentucky, we have 300 women from the Bourbon Women Association coming to our annual Sipposium conference in August, and I'm pretty confident that they would enjoy a small taste of your product. So you are welcome to be my guest during that time. Well, I'd like for her to come back in August, too. So that being said, there's... One other thing I want to talk about, and that is the Moxie. I've had the pleasure of tasting the Moxie, and actually, it's, I probably like the Moxie better than enjoying the <laughs> Pfeiffer Pavit Reserve on its own. That might mean that I'm a wimp to spirits, or I don't know, but Suzanne? Tell everybody what the Moxie is. Well, I think, Michelle, that's because you love Napa Cabernet and you have your bourbon influence and it mixes both. So one of the things that presented itself was with this resurgence of bourbon and this whole mixology and mixologist pursuit was this group of fabulous, edgy mixologists said, we'd like to have a signature cocktail with your product. And I was intrigued, 
and they started working through different cocktails, came up with this menu, sent it to me, and in short, I was appalled. <laughs> I said, okay, first of all, you're putting the Fiverr Pavit Reserve Bourbon and the Fiverr Pavit Cabernet together with simple syrup and lemon juice. This is blasphemy on both counts. I'll be ran out of Napa, and bourbon na- country may not welcome me back. And I couldn't have been more wrong. So being a little bit old school, I said, I, I'm going to bring in my team, younger folks, a tasting group. We're going to make this cocktail, and we're going to evaluate it. And I was blown over. It's a take on a New York sour. It is, as I said, the Pfeiffer Pavit Reserve Bourbon, simple syrup, lemon juice, and it's finished with a splash of Pfeiffer Pavit Cabernet. It is called the Moxie, and it is delicious. Although we've come up with a new term, and it's a verb. Be cautious not to get moxied. Oh, there you go. Because if one overserves with that cocktail, it's hard. They're hard pressed to continue the day. So all in moderation. But the moxie cocktail. So the beautiful packaging we have on the Pfeiffer Pavit Reserve is adorned with a hang tag that has the recipe for this cocktail. Kind of an ode to the old and to the new of moving forward. So edgy, fun, approachable. Delicious. Well, I'm a purist, so I do like everything independent, but I did love that moxie. Good. So, good. It was good that you did a little um, uh, R&D with your yes. staff. Yes. <laughs> yeah. In fact, um, just quickly, today, one of the restaurants that we met with had done their homework and read about it and then put us on the spot. Well, let's just make the cocktail right now. said... Okay. A little deer in the headlights, <laughs> but fortunately, my companion had been a bartender in another life and said, I'll make it. And it was ex- it was gorgeous to look at, and the flavor profile was fabulous. So the reception was really, really great. Wonderful. Well, Peggy and Suzanne, thank you both for sitting down with me today, and I'm glad that Commonwealth Tap let us have our little discussion here, and... Everybody, drink a little bourbon and a little wine. Thank you for tuning in to listen and learn about the women featured in our lifestyle books and involved in our business. Share these episodes on your social media platforms so more people can learn about Wine Country Women. Visit our website at winecountrywomen.com to join our list and be the first to learn about exclusive offers and events. Grab a glass and join us next week for a new episode of Wine Country Women.